killed walking your doggy. My name is Matthew Kroll. And if it wasn't for the fornication and the blood, we wouldn't be here. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the two films? The two, well, to, in celebration of the fact that this is episode 450. Yay, hey, we did it. We, we sat in a room <laughs> once a week for eight years. Oh, my God. Uh... Is that <laughs> you know what I'm thinking? We're starting to sound like what Danny Glover and Mel Gibson from Lethal Weapon. Sure, you should we, I'm too old for this shit. Maybe that's at 500 <laughs> as we watch a, all four. There's four Lethal Weapons, right? Yes, and bypassing the sort of uh cancellation of uh Mel Gibson in recent years. Well, I no, I think did four came out way before I mean, canceling whatever, yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. yeah, I think four came out before he became current day Mel Gibson. Well, what the question is, is was he always current he was, day? Before it was public knowledge that he was always current day Mel Gibson. Here's the thing. I I really like Mel Gibson's films. As I do a too. director, I think he is phenomenal. Um, and I think- <laughs> It's just that pesky human being part. Yeah, well, and and you know, like I grew up watching his movies. Uh, Lethal Weapon was a major mainstay of uh, a few friends of ours. We would watch- uh, Lethal Weapon, basically every day during yeah, the yeah, summer, yeah. along with Do the Right Thing, of all things. Um, Mel Gibson could have been Clint Eastwood at this point. In terms of, like, his directorial <laughs> career. Okay. You know, like, like he, was, he could have been cranking out movies. Like, he made Hacksaw Ridge, which I went to and saw a screening of last few years ago. Not a movie I loved, but it was, like, it was fine. I would argue he also kind of is Clint Eastwood. Right. <laughs> in, a in, different, the, in a different, in a different, in the non-directorial career sense. Right. But he, I'm just meaning like Clint Eastwood has, you know, transitioned yes. his career from actor to director really effectively and then became one of the most notable directors of our, of our generation. Yeah. Um, and I think Mel Gibson could have done that. And maybe he will. Look, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I will say I'm a little uh, unclear on exactly what happened. I know there was anti-Semitism involved. Yes. Uh, and uh, recorded rants or something like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, like we, we go back and listen to that episode. I, I don't even remember which which episode it was. Uh, separating art from the artist. Yep. Uh, there's oh, a yeah, conversation we had uh, long about that, which is to say, I think in that conversation, what we established is that it is a personal decision to everybody. And also it's a nuanced decision because yeah. the relationship between an artist and their work uh, changes and evolves over time, and and our relationship to that, um, you know, is ever evolving. What's not ever evolving is when we don't watch it. <laughs> when we when we don't watch well, a piece of work. When we <laughs> yeah, yeah. transitioning into, into our blind spots. spots. Yeah, when we don't watch a piece of work, it's impossible to have, to separate the art from the artist because you haven't seen the goddamn work. Yeah. Um, and that's what this episode is all about. This was a very fun idea you had. Yeah. Uh, trying to go back and basically, uh, and I'm curious. We'll get into exactly what we mean, uh, or personally what we mean by a blind spot movie. But basically, it's the film that you feel like you always should have seen that you just haven't gotten around to for whatever reason. Life sometimes gets in the way. Uh, for me. It was a thing where it, it's almost it was a, a point of embarrassment where if my <laughs> film again, it will be my film is heat. Um, I would not say that I had not seen it, but I would also not say that I'd seen it. I would just sort of like go along with it. Or like if there was a Pacino quote, I'd be like, ah, yes, ah, yes. <laughs> I understood that reference. Um and so I was very excited to sort of have an excuse to dive into this movie that I've heard nothing but just praise for for god so many freaking years yeah um since 1995 i guess um <laughs> did you see, oh, so you didn't see it in 1995 what did i mean we should actually you know what i'll table that conversation we should talk about it and then because i think my film pick yeah um both revived by claire denis 
actually ties thematically to your film pick as well, which I think was a was a uh, a little unintended uh, benefit to this whole thing. Okay. Um, but my the reason I chose this topic as well was that a few years ago I was directing something in New Zealand. And uh, it was a very, very small thing to the point where I had to pick up the actress. We flew her in from a, another city and I had to pick her up. Um, and there was like this weird thing where she was coming in just to do the part. And so I was having to get to know her, you know, like in the drives to and, right. to and from the location, what have you. Um, and I think at one point she asked me who my favorite filmmakers were or who my favorite actors were. And I rattled off a list, you know, I, I, I don't generally like answering that question because it's like, well, I you know, I like different things at different times, what have you. Mm -hmm. But I kind of was like, you know, yeah, we should get to know each other. So I started talking about things I like, I really liked. And she made the point very aptly immediately after I finished that conversation, she goes, no women on that list. And I was like, you know, and I, and I stopped and I thought about it and I was like, you know what? In, in all the times I've ever been asked that question, I don't think I've ever listed a female director. I don't think I've ever listed, you know, when someone asked me, because she just said actors. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I hadn't considered what my favorite female actors was. And so I was like, you know what? That's a hundred percent correct. And that's, a, that is a big blind spot of mine. Now I've watched a lot of movies and I've seen a lot of female filmmakers work. Um, not least of which you can hear me talk embarrassingly about how I embarrassed myself in front of Jane Campion. Um, <laughs> but, but I was like, so, so that has been a thing for me in the last few years is, as like a blind spot of going, you know what? I, I spent like years a years in college watching Woody Allen, Wong Kar Wai, Roman Polanski, um, you know, all these filmmakers and not at any point did I actually devote the energy to a single female filmmaker to mm -hmm. like watch their body of work all the way through. So I took this as an opportunity to kind of be like, Hey, Claire Denis, I don't know a lot about her. I've seen one of her movies at this point, white materials. Um, I know she's made a break into American cinema recently. She made a film called high life. I believe it was with uh, Robert Patterson. Um, and, and I was like, you know, this is the time. And that's what I think this episode is really about is take some time to, you know, if you listen to us, we want you, we, we invited you, uh, or, or this, this episode should be an invitation to take some time to find a filmmaker, to discover someone that you haven't uh, seen before. May not just be the filmmaker, maybe a genre film, maybe an actress, maybe an actor, maybe a cinematographer whose work you don't know very much about. I like I like this assignment because you and I both attacked it from a very different place. Right. Like I I looked at it as <laughs> like it definitely they're both blind spots. Yeah. But my, although we both came to it from a place of embarrassment, <laughs> I'm not embarrassed by mine. I'm just I'm just no no like, no. Yeah. I mean I mean looking at a thing i was i've been always like oh i i talk about movies once a week for the majority of my adult life and i've never seen this one classic that everyone has seen and you were like i talk about movies and make movies and all this stuff but i have not uh given time to uh like to insert into your favorites female directors etc yeah. so it's like there's like a it's a moment it's a moment for all of us to check ourselves <laughs> yeah but also but also uh, enjoy the fact that movie, you know, like movies don't go away. I think we're, we're like, we're bound by the release schedule all the time. And we're like, oh, there's a new Martin Scorsese movie coming out sure. next week. And they'll let some stuff. All these movies are out there in an archive and are, and are more accessible than they've ever been before. We'll see how long that lasts. Well, right. But they are, <laughs> there are, there are all these movies still exist on a shelf and you can try and find, them. although Boats Revive was difficult to get a hold of uh, initially until, uh, until Criterion put their, um, added it to the collection recently. I mean, I, we're not going to turn into a physical media thing, but this comes the same, we're doing this the same week that I believe Best Buy has announced it will stop selling physical movies. It'll stop and selling DVDs and Blu-rays. Netflix has ended their DVD distribution. Yep. 
stopped that's been a bit ago though they're going netflix is also going to start physical locations i don't know what for i just saw that headline i was like okay cost merchandising baby yeah so uh yeah it's the same reason why there's like amazon stores and you're like that's not what this was for yeah um but no, mm-hmm. movies should be that. And you're right. I would say most likely we have access to the most amount of movies that humans have ever had access to. Yeah. But on an individual film level, you never know when something will just go away. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, we're seeing that more and more. We've talked about that many, many times. It's just an interesting uh, uh, contradiction in a way. Yeah. Because uh, the, the fullness of film we have access more to than ever. Yeah can't find dogma anywhere like it's like or you can't like oh, yeah, you know yeah. what i mean like there, there are licensing rights licensing that, rights right. or just taking things off streaming or in the case of scooby-doo or batgirl like they just oh it's a tax write-off so fuck that movie yeah like th- so it's i don't know i've just i've been getting more and more in the physical media kick and especially with the announcements that, that best buy the largest store i think that did carry dvds and blu-rays is not doing it anymore that hits me pretty weird and hard um well, when was the last time you bought something from best buy like bought uh, a DVD from Best Buy. Uh, what was it? I bought uh, Weird, the Al Yankovic story. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Physically bought yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I didn't know. I ordered. I ordered from Best Buy. dot com, but they're uh. they're taking them off that too. Oh, like what, can I ask why Best Buy instead of Amazon? Uh, it depends. Uh, uh, sometimes it's prices. Also, Best Buy had the steelbooks. Okay. You could get steelbooks for various things there, and yeah. you couldn't get them elsewhere. Yeah. I don't know what's happening with that. Again, this is all small yeah. things. And I'm let me say this: I don't think any company should keep doing something that is. I mean, overall, this is a loaded statement, but like if it's not making them money and it's not helping Best Buy, then sure, like there's I might want to try to save it or do something different with it or whatever. But like I understand why companies make decisions. I just think it really sucks that the large brick and mortar place or even the large website compository that is outside of it, because Amazon, I don't know if you noticed. It still has everything, but you got to dig three times as hard to find something that's not a fucking like bot made bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just I, it, it's sad that there's no longer going to be a major physical place to be able to go and buy major physical movies. Barnes and um, Noble still exists. Yeah, but it's not the same. It's not the same breath, I think, as Best Buy carried. Really? Yeah. Best Buy had racks on racks on racks. Uh, and Barnes and Noble has a decent selection. But I and again, oh, no, I, a- like, I, I, I'm just going to disagree on that one because I've I've perused both the the Best Buy locally and the. And the Barnes and Noble locally and far and away. I'm talking about outside of New York City because the Best Buys in New York City also kind of suck. Yeah. Like I'm saying for the average non-city dwelling person, Best Buy was probably the place where they could still buy physical media the most easily. Right. Um, and it stinks that it's gone. And I bet you that Barnes Barnes and Noble is going to shut this down uh, eventually Uh, as well. Regardless, the point of that, we kind of got sidetracked. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Um it's good that we're watching blind spot movies because not only does it enrich our lives, but even though we do have more access to films than ever, never know. <laughs> <laughs> and also again, it's, uh, I don't think you should be embarrassed by your blind spots. Not everyone can watch every movie. I haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia. I haven't seen gone with the wind. Sure. There's lots of movies that are considered the great masterpieces that I have not seen. Uh, despite, you know, thinking of myself as a cinephile. Uh, so I don't think it's, you know, like you should be embarrassed by these. It's just like, Oh, Maybe you didn't see this one movie and, and now is the time it, and, and you know, the curious thing is, is, does, is the interest peak you enough to, to want to go out and seek it out, you know? And, and that's what this episode is an invitation to is like, what is that one thing that you thought about, but haven't done? And, and maybe, you know, like it's okay to let go of your blind spots as well. Like it's okay. 
if there is a one movie that you know everyone keeps talking about and you haven't seen and you, and you know you just can't muster the energy to do it that's cool yeah <laughs> I, yeah it's this is this is the the one tiny push episode this is the like the thing that's been on your mind that you haven't had enough of mustard to go and do yourself so we hope that a, a very minor assignment uh will help you out along the way and uh to help along with that assignment uh i uh, set up a, a thing a few last week where we asked people to send us in their blind spots and lo and behold and even though we gave such a limited run if some of you have only had a couple of days to actually listen to that episode um uh, a lot of people responded we're going to try and get through those here uh so thank you to everybody that wrote us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com yes thank you i want to take uh, just a quick moment i do it every time but you know want to celebrate our listeners because um there are lots of times so many times where we're asking ourselves the question is like should we continue this podcast how much <laughs> effort does it take to do this podcast and without fail when that happens something like this happens which is people send us in these recordings and remind us that people are listening and we are um uh incredibly grateful and always reminded of the fact that we are here to have a conversation with you. Our motto is that we should continue the conversation that the movie is having, and we want to make sure that the people that are listening to this episode uh, always feel invited to join that conversation, whether it's by sending us an email, sending us a tweet, in this case, sending us a voicemail, whatever it may be, we want to make sure that there is a community being formed here that is not centered around Matt and Shahir, but centered around movies and centered around our, our communal love for movies and I want to discuss them. It could be a little bit centered around me. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. Just a, just a bit, not yeah, a lot. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't want that level of uh, responsibility. Uh, I actually, this is, does this tie into blind spots enough? I have a, I have a request for emails. Okay, sure. Um, how did, we've asked this before, but I, it's almost like a reverse blind spot. If you are a part of the uh, illustrious Topan fam at this point, how did you come to start listening to us? I think we've asked that. question. Have we before. asked that question we, again? We, if you haven't, if you haven't answered that before, I am very curious. Okay. Like, especially now that we are on Nebula or was it a specific movie that you were moved by that you just Googled and we happened to come <laughs> up? I feel like those might be two of them, but also Shahir, I know you do a lot of, um, you handle the social media side of it on, on Twitter for the most part. And, yeah. uh, outside of like the, the postings of when the episodes go live. And uh, the interaction you do there, I'm sure, like brings people in as well. I'm just curious, <laughs> where, how did you get unblinded to us? Well, uh, uh, Anika, who wrote us in the first time, actually uh, made a point uh, in the email that uh, she sent along with this, uh, which is that we predominantly communicate on Twitter slash X, whatever it is. But she communicates to us via uh, Instagram. So we do have an Instagram feed. That's we right. Did, um, with about the same amount of followers, I guess. Um, but we, we are Instagram. And then she was also uh, very responsive to the idea of us having a Discord server or a Patreon or something like that. So we appreciate that. Uh, take it away, Anika. Tell us what your blind spot movie is. Hi, Matt and Shahir. Uh, this is Anika, a longtime listener of the pod. Um, I was really excited for this episode uh, about uh, cinematic blind spots. Um, but yeah, I wanted to share uh, that I think one of my cinematic blind spots is definitely The Princess Bride. I really thought I had watched it because just it was so much part of culture. I thought I knew, you know, the Inigo Montoya line and all of that. But I saw it so much that I had thought that I actually had watched the film. 
but only kind of through actually chatting with friends through the pandemic who were talking about it being their favorite comfort movie, I realized that I hadn't actually watched it. Um, and of course, I was met with shock and horror from my friends who found out uh, that I had it, uh, how I could miss this very important film uh, for many of our childhoods. So yeah, that's a cinematic blind spot that I'm hoping to fix soon. Uh, but yeah, thanks. Can't wait to listen to the episode. Thank you, Anika. Thanks, Anika. Uh, I w- got some hot takes here. Okay. Yeah, right already? Away. Already got some hot takes on this one. I, I was going to say she's in she's in good company because that was me a couple of years ago. You hadn't seen uh, Princess Bride? Yeah, uh, uh, and uh, it did. It felt the same way. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I will say it was great. Yeah. I don't think I had the same reverence for it that everyone, like, I, I've never gone back again. And yeah. that's not an insult to the film. I think it's just a time period thing, or maybe maybe hype is the truest poison. Well, I think also um, The Princess Bride in particular um, was a film that was probably thrown on a lot for kids, you know, like in our generation where it was like they had the VHS. It was a safe bit. You can always put it on. It, yep. There's something for everybody in that film. Um, I want to co- come in with a couple of hot takes here. Okay. Uh, the first is my wife has the most irrational hate of this movie. And I don't know why we haven't de- we haven't dug into this. But every time we talk about The Princess Bride, she's like, I goddamn hate that movie should we do an episode if she comes on <laughs> she comes on to talk about it because i i don't know if it's based in in actually the movie at this point or whether there is some like uh deep buried memory or something like that uh, about this particular movie um that's my first hot take on okay, it. Okay. I, my, my second hot take my, my my second hot take is that i i like the movie just fine however however the movie comes in uh as one of the great four film runs from a director and that's Rob Reiner. Mm-hmm. And those films are Stand By Me in 1986, The Princess Bride in 1987, When Harry Met Sally in 1989, Misery in 1990, and A Few Good Men in 1992. What a fucking run. Yeah, that's that pretty good. That. And I, here's my hot take on that. The Princess Bride is the weakest link of those movies. Of all of those movies, to me, The Princess Bride is the one that I, I do not revisit I don't think about a lot, uh, but the other five was it one, two, three, four, four five. five. Uh, so the four other four movies, I just think are absolute bangers, and that is one of the great director runs in history. I think is is those five movies. All right, um, what a run! Well, <laughs> yeah, Anika, let us know what you think when you see it. Uh, maybe we'll do the Princess Bride at some point. We should do the Princess Bride yeah. at some point. No, no, no shade to the Princess Bride. No. I, I'm, I'm kind of in, like you, a little indifferent to the movie. Yeah, it, uh, I had fun watching it. Yeah, yeah. But, but Matt, I'm very excited about this because she's got a great ass. <laughs> she's got a great, ass. and you got your head all the way up it. I didn't realize <laughs> they were talking about heat. By the way, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize heat was where this line was from. Right. I knew Al Pacino said it. Yeah. Because it was everywhere for a while and he's a psychopath. Yeah. But I did not know this was heat. Yeah. And then uh, uh, I was texting uh, with a friend before I started watching it. And I was mentioning that I, I whatever, uh, that I was going to watch it. And he, he, he said something like, that movie's got a great ass or something <laughs> like that. And I was like, oh. Oh, is this the, oh, well then we got to wait for this an hour and 45 in, um, heat for those of you who maybe heat is a blind spot for you. Mm -hmm. IMDB defines the film heat as 
A group of high-end professional thieves start to feel the heat from the LAPD when they unknowingly leave a clue at their latest heist. Slick. Slick. Slick clue. Um, I guess that's it. Like, <laughs> when I read this description, I was like, is Slick the clue? Yeah, Slick is the clue. And that's and that's the amazing thing about the film. Now, um, I have so much to talk about in terms of heat because, it, as I mentioned to you, it is a film I've watched uh probably twice like i i watched once a year probably from the year 2000 onwards and then as um as podcast culture has grown film podcasting culture has grown heat seems to be a central focus point around the film bro community and i mean it is a and this, there's no i have theories there's no secret to this michael mann's films uh, uh generally are about male figures and uh male relationships and um, heat uh, occupies a preeminent space within the film bro community as as both high art and also um, high octane thrills. Um, the movie was released in 1995, and again, an incredible year uh, in terms of feature films that came out. Least of which, uh, Robert De Niro starred both in Heat and Casino in 1995. I know. Um, the movie Seven came out. Clueless, The Usual Suspects, Goldeneye, Braveheart. Um, you know, a lot of bangers came out that year. Um, and I recall 1995 was for me, one of those years where I really started getting invested in film. Um, you know, like, you know, I think I was reading premier magazine or neon magazine. I think it was called at the time. Mm -hmm. So I would read, I started getting interested in like the behind the scenes story. I think it's the, 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 the interest in the behind the scenes stories started for me around Jurassic Park and Terminator 2, which is 1991. Yeah, that checks and, out. Um, so that, you know, I remember seeing like the behind the scenes of the liquid middle man. And like, suddenly I was like, oh, how does this get made? And then started devouring all this stuff. And in 1994 or three, I think there was articles starting to come out about Michael Mann's heat. Now I didn't know a lot about Michael Mann. This was probably the first Michael Mann movie I'd seen. Um, but the big thing here was Robert De Niro and Al Pacino in a movie together and centered around a single conversation that they would have in the movie. Now, they both appeared in The Godfather Part Two, but they didn't have a speaking scene between, yep. between them. Um, and so, and these were the two titans of uh, method acting, New Yorkers, you know, like kind of considered both the greatest actors of all time. Uh, Pacino had kind of been on a little bit of a downswing, but De Niro was always hitting high. Um, so I recall going to see it in the movie theater, and I recall my feeling about it at the time was a little bit underwhelmed. It's a long movie. It's a complicated movie. Mm. But what I found is the rewatchability of it has grown in its estimation. In fact, the movie didn't do very well in 1995. Yeah, I, I was reading that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The movie did fairly poorly. Um, but as I mentioned, in as film culture has grown, we've, we've had Blake Howard on the podcast who runs One Heat Minute where they mm -hmm. break down the movie minute by minute. And his whole thing is, you know, if you ask me to watch any movie, my, my, my question that I always ask is, would I rather watch Heat? And for him, a lot of times is I would rather watch Heat. <laughs> Michael Mann has appeared on that show. The Rewatchables has done Heat several times over. There are um, repertory sc screenings of Heat all the time. And then Christopher Nolan has brought back the popularity of Heat because you know one of the most popular movies of 2008 was The Dark Knight, which is clearly uh, devoted to Heat. Yeah. In fact, he talks about Heat as the, the main reference point for that film all the time. So Matt. That's a big buildup. It's a big buildup. So I, I was interested in your thing. You're like, back in 1995, I was doing this and the other thing. And I was kind of like started looking up other films in 1995 because yeah. the ones you listed are great. But the ones that I think I was uh, gravitating towards and the one that weirdly 
got me thinking. Of, so I've mentioned many times in the past that Escape from New York was the film that got me that that sort of broke the mold of letting me know that people make these things that I'm watching. I saw it when I was young and I didn't quite, you know, well, you don't real that moment where you're like, oh, wait, like this yeah. came from somewhere. So that was the movie that got me thinking about it. But the what? but the movie that got me wanting to like pick up a camera mm -hmm. weirdly was Desperado, which came out yeah, in 1995. Yeah. And and it was not the movie itself, but the story of how the movie was made. It was based around a uh, the El Mariachi, which mm -hmm. was what for made for 6K, and then they turned that thing into like an actual like a, a larger budget film with a, a wider release and that's when i started learning about budgets and releases yeah. and all of this other stuff so i was just probably a little bit behind you just the cusp of like the behind the scenes of it all yeah i obviously didn't watch heat back then because i was busy watching things like tommy boy or uh <laughs> billy madison yeah or uh, empire records i think i was more into comedies until that sort of happened uh, uh, clueless was obviously great you know, I can tell you also just an inflection point in that year as well, which is that Batman Forever came out that year. Ba yeah, yeah. And I remember watching Batman Forever and going, this is not for me. Mm. And, I, and I, I watched them going, this is not a good movie. I, I actually <laughs> liked Batman Forever when it came out. I went through a phase of not liking it and I like it again. Yeah. Um, the first movie that made me realize that movies could be bad yeah. was Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Okay. Yeah, uh, the sequel to Mortal Kombat. <laughs> that takes something that I love deeply yeah. and shat all over it and i was like oh oh god they can they can do this uh, regardless heat never uh grabbed me then obviously i think i was a little too young for something as and i won't say slow is the wrong word because I, I feel like this movie ratchets its energy up there's there's a constant tension i guess i won't say energy it's tension that is building the entire time and there's moments of release yeah uh for as long of a movie as heat is it never felt it uh, I think it's just sort of a masterwork at that sort of like men in in cool jobs and relationship <laughs> genre like and the the conversation it's 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 strange in 2023 oh maybe not now with Oppenheimer kind of out but it's strange to think about like the weight of a scene between a conversation between two characters and how like that can be the most engrossing thing in a film that has uh, an insanely cool bank robbery shootout in yeah. it. Um, like that scene of De Niro and Pacino talking to each other in the diner. I, ha I was glued to that way harder than I was robbing the bank. Right. Um, something, something that I realized while watching it, and this happens a lot, I think probably with blind spots. Mm -hmm. It did not grab me in the way I was expecting it to based on the hype, but not because it didn't live up to said hype. Mm -hmm. It's because so many things that I love and interact with on almost a daily basis are based on this fucking movie. Mm -hmm. It's the first one, at least it's the, it's the one that people gravitate towards and people like Christopher Nolan mm -hmm. or other artists that I like, like will pull from heat. Wish and Anderson says he draws from heat all the time and nobody calls him out on it. That's hilarious. <laughs> he says he, he says he, he pulls from heat all the time. And Is I that think just a bit. No, I, I think if you look at his heist, his movies that involve heist, oh, like yeah. the life aquatic and what have you, it's, his genre is different, but he says that he draws from heat all all the time. What was the the, 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 the not the Jarjili limit? What's the what's the what the newspaper one that we just watched? Oh, the French Dispatch. The French Dispatch yeah, yeah. that has a chase animated at the yeah. end. But yeah, I could see it. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
so many things in comics and movies and games, mm-hmm. like the entirety of Grand Theft Auto, mm-hmm. I feel like is based on heat and I never put two and two together. Perhaps a little bit more on Miami Vice, which is also a Michael Mann well, so, show so, pro- project. So uh, Vice City, yeah. GTA Vice City is based more on Miami mm-hmm. Vice. GTA mm-hmm. 3, 4, and 5, I would argue, are very heat-focused. They, mm-hmm. they feel, I know, the, obviously, heat doesn't take place in, in New York, but yeah. there's, uh, in the Rockstar games, there are different cities and their amalgamations, etc. But, like, I was thinking back to even my time with the story of Grand Theft Auto V, which mm-hmm. I think is phenomenal. I wish Rockstar would release more single-player story content, but that doesn't print the money, so they won't. As far as games go, Grand Theft Auto is a huge blind spot for me. Is it? Yeah. yeah. So, like, but, the, but and, and the, the original Grand Theft Auto, or not the original, the first 3D one on PlayStation 2, Grand Theft Auto 3, uh, gave you a story that felt like a movie, even though your protagonist was silent, but there were people talking to you and you were directed to do crime things and there was drama and whatever. Up to five at this point, mm-hmm. there's three main characters. It feels very Heat-esque because in Heat, you're jumping sort of back and forth between the two crews and their families or different members. And it feels like everything that they are doing is connected to a larger thing that the movie obviously builds towards. I feel like the structure of Grand Theft Auto Five is you can at any point in the single player game. Sometimes it forces you, but other times it doesn't. Just switch and see what Michael is doing or switch and see what Trevor is doing. And it zooms you out, you move and you go. And they come together, they splash together in ways that I was like, the storytelling and this is so really cool and innovative and stuff like that. But you look back at Heat and that's basically the exact thing that Heat was making the map for. Um, And so with all that said, the impact of heat was lessened mm-hmm. not because it was any less the the genius moment that people all say it is but because that genius moment has been fed to me 9000 times across different media so when i watched it i could appreciate it as the progenitor but i didn't have the emotional hit or like oh my god yeah. like um the, and that was an interesting experiment to me. We've talked about this on another movie. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm blanking on which one it was. Yeah, I, I recall you having that experience. Email us at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com and tell me what my opinion was on another I thing I can't Citizen remember. Kane, to be honest with you. I think it you, might have been Citizen Kane. Kane. Yeah, we were like, well, have you know, like, is the impact of this movie lessened because mainly I've seen what the, what the, how people have played with Citizen Kane. What it has wrought. Yeah, what it, what it has wrought upon us. <laughs> uh, but but this, this the movie itself um, was still just a really good watch. If anyone has had a blind spot uh, for Heat, I would obviously recommend it. It is, e- even if you're, even knowing you might not get the emotional punch that every one of your friends got mm. uh, back in the day, uh, it, there's just something incredibly interested in the, interesting in the craft and the way that, the way that man kind of uh, does take what what also can be in the genre of crime films boring and kind of typecasty and nonsense and turn that thing not like pivot away or try to get away from that but embrace it so hard that it becomes like something i'm more akin to like an art film in a weird way yeah uh I was never not interested in any minor dumb character mm-hmm. uh even like it was funny and i also didn't realize how many people we're in fucking heat. Like Danny like, Trejo is like yeah, a, yeah, a, a central and probably and arguably Danny Trejo's best performance. It's his most serious performance. I think I, I think that his uh, no spoilers here, but his death scene is incredible, and it's yeah. probably one of the greatest death scenes ever committed to film. 
Like, in my opinion. I didn't know Natalie Portman was in this movie. One of her early roles. Uh, and uh, we talked about Batman Forever. Val Kilmer was the lead. He was Bruce Wayne and Batman and number three in Heat. Yeah. That's, a, that's crazy, right? Your leading man comes in and is the third player in this movie. That's how big a deal getting uh, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino together at this point was. Yeah. Uh, uh, West Studi, obviously, from yeah. all the crime procedurals. Ashley Judd, Hank Azaria, Hank William Fitcher. Like, I, I could not. Oh, um, uh, let's, not let's not forget about the, the, the you know, uh, rest in peace, Tom Sizemore. Yeah. Tom like, Sizemore is one of his greatest performances. Uh, this For me, is, the, the action is the juice. <laughs> the action. John Voight. Yeah, John Voight uh, coming out, you know, like breaking away from his anaconda role. Uh, and then eventually kind of becoming a character actor because of this movie. It is. It, the, it, I, I didn't. Every time. Diane I'm, Viora. She's incredible in this. The entire time in this movie, I was doing the Leo pointing at the TV. It is Haysbert. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a. It's a. And. It's funny. I think I actually have seen the end scene at the airport when they're going through the blockers at the in the in the field. Yeah. I think I've seen that on television because that rang a, a real uh, deja vu vibe for mm -hmm. me. Uh, I didn't know what happened at the end, but I'm like, I've seen this imagery. Yeah. And maybe and probably and, heard the Moby song at some point. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, or maybe like it's possible, like did the Simpsons do a thing about like I'm or something sure. like, I'm you sure. know. Yeah. So that that scene feels so iconic that I did it. The thing that I was honestly. And maybe this is just this is the, the, the product of blind spots. Mm. I didn't. I was not as blown away by the bank heist mm -hmm. as everyone built the bank heist up to be. I think it's a I think it's a hype problem, not the movie's problem. Right. Um, it was a great scene. But like I, every time I've talked to people who talk about heat, they just talk about that sequence forever. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's a it's a wonderful blueprint of how to do something excellently that so many people have sort of taken the pieces from and filed the serial numbers off that I've I felt I'd seen something similar before. Mm -hmm. Um, I, it was weird. I thought that would be my highlight, but the highlight, and this is I think a, a compliment to the film, not a detriment, was the conversation between Pacino and De Niro in the diner because there is something intrinsically interesting I think about taking two di diametric or di. Uh, opposing sides yeah and having them sit down as people mm -hmm. i mean it's weird history is actually kind of rife with this like there are kings and rulers and and countries uh leaders that would like despite the fact that their people are just slaughtering each other they will go and sit down with one another and be like okay what's happening here like there's a, and like i think that's both fascinating and fucked up yeah and I and, and, uh, and you're are you aware that this is based on a real conversation that actually happened? Oh, no. So so uh, Michael Mann, uh, as he was developing Miami Vice and in his early career, would talk a lot to cops and, you know, and to to crooks, mm -hmm. as it turned out. And um, he there was a real Neil McCauley um, in the 60s that uh, the police investigator that he was interviewing said, yeah, there was this guy that I knew. Uh, who was fastidious in terms of his execution of heist. If anything was off, he would walk away. And that made him one of the greatest uh, bank robbers. And he said, uh, and, you know, he, the, the police officer that Michael Mann was talking to said, but it was my job to take him down. And he said, and I saw him one day uh, and I said, let's have coffee. And they sat down and they had coffee and they talked about what it is they do. And then he said, and then a few weeks later, I shot him and he died. And, and, that, and, and that stuck with Michael Mann for decades. Yeah. To the extent... 
um, that this was uh, so Michael Mann had, had some early success with Thief. Thief is another that was a, the blind spot film for me. I watched it uh, just last year, I think, and was absolutely blown away. That will become a repeat rotation film for me. Um, and you know, you'd had Heat and Manhunter. Manhunter, I actually just watched again on the plane. All oh, right. Uh, yeah, I was just like, I I'm going through a period of like rewatching a lot of stuff, and. Um, um, uh, man was approached to make this film, I think in 1989 or 1988, 89, uh, with, with a minimal budget. So he'd written a 180 page script. Uh, he had tried to get, uh, some of his, uh, friends to make the movie, but no one was interested in doing it. Um, so, uh, there was a small amount of financing available to make it, make the movie for television. And they did, and it's available. It's on YouTube. It's called LA Takedown. And I've watched it. I watched it in preparation for this, and I, and I watched Heat as well. And it's incredible how much L.A. Takedown is basically the exact same film, just stripped down. Same dialogue, same sequences, huh. same plotting, same mechanics. Everything about it is almost identical. It doesn't have the, the weight of De Niro and Pacino. And, and it's amazing what basically doing the prototype run of that film does to Heat because, you know, and man talks about himself and, you know, when they made the prototype version, they had to prep for 20 days. They shot for 20 days or something like that. Sure. For when it came time to do heat, they prepped for six months. They shot for 180 or so, you know, some ridiculous yeah. amount of days. And the movie carries that weight. You know, the scenes are far more fleshed out. Um, there's introductions of, you know, Dennis Haysbert's and Natalie Portman's character, which weren't in the LA takedown. Basically the LA takedown is, is the 180 page version, but they cut it back down to 110 pages okay. uh, or whatever it is. Uh, I mean, th they have the diner scene in LA takedown and it is word for word, huh. the same conversation. And it is worth watching just to see that, um, played out. Um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll jump into kind of my rewatch of it. Yeah. Uh, because, because I do watch it a lot, and it is a comfort movie for me. How oh. many times would you say in your lifetime you've watched uh, Ballpark? I don't need like a... I would say at a minimum 20 times. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There, and there's very... The, 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 the diagram, the bell curve or whatever it is of films that reach that peak are very small. Yeah. Um, but the reason I rewatch it is that there is... A, it's an immense tome. So there is a lot going on mm -hmm. and there's something new to discover every way. That's why I rewatch it um, because I enjoy the journey of it and I enjoy discovering things new about it. We mentioned, you know, Spotlight has become one of these movies for me. Where I watch it a lot because I just love the discovery process that goes on with that film. And, but the thing that's interesting is that thing that you mentioned, which is that the heist is like cool. And I would say like, for me, the thing is in Oceans 11, 12 and 13, the heist in that film are cool. Mm -hmm. The heist and heat for me is always painful and it's always difficult to watch because it is these characters. And I, I don't, I think what's happened in the, with the film as it's grown in, in its estimation is people are really starting to acknowledge that these are, that, that um, Macaulay, as much as we admire the kind of the competency porn of Robert De Niro as a character in this film, like yeah. how good and how efficient he is, yeah. how amazing, like, it is that you know during the 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 nighttime yeah when he hears the the, the drill noise. and he just hears one thing and he's like we're out you know like that th that's this kind of like aspirational quality to him which is like he is so precise and so well considered in everything he does but what happens on the rewatches you know and again I've watched this movie twenty times now is how terrible a human being he is and how yeah. terrible a human being how terrible all these people are. And like Chirito, for example, the Tom Sizemore character is really fascinating. And I think, I think you know, 
man does this on purpose, which is that he gives us an insight into their into their uh, personal lives. You know, we see them at dinner with their wives and families, and and this film is built on the classic trope that has been made fun of so much, which is the predator and prey are one and the same person. You know, this is a, a Hitchcock thing. This is face off. This is, you know, every male oriented film yeah. about crime is the, the, the cops and the robbers are essentially the same person, you know, two sides of the same coin. Yep. Um, but the, what I get out of it now, the more I watch it is the monstrosity of Macaulay. Yeah, he, he's a, he's an awful human being. He's a real piece of shit. And especially yeah. with uh, it was Amy Brenneman that yeah. plays Edie. Oh yeah. Like Brenneman, like Edie, is walking into a death trap. And I think she knows it. And and she is waiting for the moment to get out of it. Um, it's I think one of the flaws of the film, and it's going to be in relation to, as uh, we talk about Bo Tavai, is that it it there's not a lot of weight placed upon the the wake of these characters. And the wake of these characters are often their female counterparts. Yeah. They're, they're, they're lovers. And... What I get more out of it, the more I watch it, is thinking about those female characters. Um, the one who kills me every time is Dennis Haysbert's wife or partner. Uh, I forget the actor's name, but she's the one who's kind of basically bringing him into um, into the job, the parole job that he's got, where he works for a chef who's also a really shitty human being. Yeah, and she has that moment with him. So, so this is the thing. It may not have reached it on the first viewing because in the first viewing, the Dennis Haysbert story is like what is this story? Like, why is it going here? And it, it does it, feel perfunctory and you're like, what is, okay. Yeah, but but on rewatching it, the amazing thing about Heat is that it is so many different stories that all get swept up into Macaulay's wake. And it builds up that story. And the, the amazing thing is that the, the Haysbert character uh, has a moment with his wife. Again, I apologize for not knowing the actress's name. Um, but she basically says, I'm really proud of you. And he's like, proud of me? Proud of me for what? And it's like, she is proud of him. She is, you know, aware that he is trying and and he makes a terrible decision at the end. It's this moment, you know, but it's a complicated thing because it's a moment of bravado. Macaulay, you know, uh, basically Danny Trejo's character has got a, you know, has got a tail and can't shake him. Mm -hmm. So like he's got a big problem. He doesn't have a driver and he's in a cafe and he sees Dennis Haysbert's character and he walks up to him and says, in or out. Uh, I, do you remember the old routines? In or out, I need an answer right now. And Haysbert is like looking around at a situation, which is like, I'm I'm a pro, you know, like in this shitty job. I have to pay like, you know, half my salary up to this guy who treats me like shit. And he says, fuck it. Yeah, let's do it. And then he dies. Yeah. And, and and that is so what I get out of the movie now is the thing that Pacino says in the diner conversation, where he says, Brother, if I come around the corner and I see you, I won't like it. But if I got to choose between you and some poor bastard's wife, you know, who you're going to make a widow, I'm taking you down. And that is the thing that I take more out of this movie. Now. Yeah. The interesting thing about that, because that got me too. But the interesting thing is that choice actually doesn't happen because we've already had that happen. Like it's the it's the double tragedy, right? Like that he's dead. He he De Niro or, or Pacino's making like. It's a it's a it's a moral choice of that line, right? But like the actual thing, he was like, "If I had a choice between this and this, the bad thing has already happened." It has happened, but it, he's saying if it happens, if 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 I, I confront you, but that's the interesting thing, like, and and he does make and Pacino makes that happen when he takes down Chirito. right? So, but, but I, 
I think there's sort of multiple layers to that thing. It's 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 the word for it, but like there's multiple fallacies going on with what is being like the, 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 the what is being said, what people say they want, and then what things actually happen and how those play out from a dramatic story structure perspective. Yeah. Like it's cool. Like I like that that line comes from Pacino, but then his driver dies. Yeah. So Pacino doesn't get to do the thing in the moment in the movie. But 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 with the Chirito scene, he does a hundred percent. Right, but it's both. Right. So my, my point is it's it's a it's a cool I like that both things can be true. Right. I don't know. I dig it. I, I like that it's not as clean as just and then he saves the he shoots him and then that person doesn't die. Like there's there's right. a he, he cool. does he does have that scene with Chirito. And then um I think the interesting thing there is that the movie is then complicated by the fact that Pacino himself is kind of a shitty husband. You know, like he's a shitty husband who's, you know, like, and and the movie goes out of its way to say that this is, you know, like even Voight's character says uh, to De Niro, this is a guy uh, that's had three divorces right now. He's not, you know, like he's not going home on the weekends kind of thing. And, and what's important to note there is that, you know, when towards the end of the film, when um, Natalie Portman, you know, tries to take her own life, uh, and, and, the, you know, like they go through the whole process of that, and it's tragic. It's, it, it is heartbreaking. It actually gets me every time. Um, because their character is really well built up and like, you know, these aren't throwaway little storylines. They, they're like, they really do have a sit up and, and evaluation and they are connected to the, the thematic through line of this film, which is that these men, these two men leave a wake behind them that they are unaware of at times. And, and, and so the amazing thing is that after he's taken Natalie Portman's character to the hospital, he's reunited. There's this, con there's this sort of moderate reconciliation that's going on there after they've decided to split up. Uh, he gets the call that Macaulay is still in town and they have a sight on him and you can just see, he's like, no, no, I'm going to stay here. And she's like, no, no, you should go. And you know, like, which is, which is an awful thing. And then, and the next shot is incredible. It's Pacino skipping down the stairs he like he skips down those stairs because he's excited by this. And I think the movie like really plays into this idea that, you know, again, it's old hat sort of stuff. The 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 predator and the prey are one and yeah. two, one and the same. But like, you know, we talked about the she's got a great ass scene. Mm -hmm. It's the thing is that um Pacino's character, Hannah, has no respect for anybody. Like he does he 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 you know, that that's the way he talks to every one of his informants. He he just barks orders at everybody else around him. But when it comes to when it comes to meeting Macaulay, he is like soft spoken. It's the one person he respects. And this movie ends with these two people who know each other better than anybody else on the planet, like holding hands. One is one has died and one has lived. And that's like the beauty, the beautiful poetry of this film is that it, you know, again, this is um Hitchcock 101. Um, yeah. you know, but but it is it it is invested in the poetry of this idea that these two men um have this tension between each other, which is that they are best suited to chase each other. Yeah, and, because they're bad at everything else. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, well emotionally. Emotionally bad. Emotionally at bad at everything else. But there is a competency to to them that is uh unparalleled. Like it, it to the point where it's ridiculous. Like Hannah goes into the hospital when Natalie Portman has, you know, taken her life. And he starts barking orders of like, we need her incubator. He's like, he's suddenly the doctor all of a sudden. Yeah. You know, like there's a, there's a level of ridiculousness in this film. But it, but 
it gets me every time. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I would, I would uh, wholeheartedly, if you haven't watched Heat, watch Heat. There's lots of reasons to do it. Um, should we listen to another? Uh, uh, should we listen to a listener's other blind spot right at this point? Here is Hassan who wrote us in uh, with his blind spot. Hi guys, hope you're doing well. Congrats on reaching 450 episodes. Still amazing that nobody else has copied your formula and tried to start another podcast and movies. For my blind spot, I recently watched Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel and I absolutely loved it. I also realized after watching the movie that why a certain subsection of film dudes are such fan of his work. And while not being a big fan of Anderson's style, I did enjoy the movie a lot and I do plan to watch the rest of his filmography. P.S. The 450th episode event, in my opinion, could have been another excellent opportunity to review the cinematic masterpiece that is Samurai Cop. Maybe next time. PPS. I think if you guys ever did a Patreon, I think the first swag must be the Fast and Shade Cut poster. Wish you all the best. Thank you, Hassan. Yeah, well, uh, should we should we make merch our terrible posters? <laughs> no, <laughs> replacing uh, replacing us with uh, with really good actors. Yeah, with us. maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be good. Also, it's funny we do this show uh, in a room from with that that has the soundproofing, but also that I'm gesturing to in this audio medium. Yeah. A banner. We have two banners actually at this point yeah. uh, with our old graphics, but that have a lot of our faces like the old poster stuff yeah. in it that we used to do for conventions and things what's your favorite out of these oh god uh the schultzy one is really good for rogue one because we're holding blasters and signs and and the lightsaber i do also really have a soft spot for la la land yep yeah uh and i think uh although i have you know what um what's moonlight yeah the moonlight uh, one is great because moonlight we did we made that or you might have made that one. I can't remember. Uh, yeah. But we did it during an EMAs. Yeah, yeah, we did. So we uh, we both travel uh, often for uh, shows for uh, MTV, and we were in Europe at the time. <laughs> I can't remember which country. It's 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 a baller move to say I don't remember which. I don't know country. which one. And the other <laughs> one, but I, you know what I do remember? We yeah. also did the Halloween reboot uh, graphic there. Oh, I yeah. remember we did a different different year, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, anyway, yeah. I like our Civil War poster. Uh, yeah, and I love um, American Honey. And uh, and the moonlight one because I think the the American Honey one is perfectly <laughs> perfectly coordinated. Yep. Uh, yeah. So these are all fun. Yes, I, we, we should. Uh, I don't know if it's a patron. Should we? <laughs> it, it, they're completely worthless. But should we make an NFT? <laughs> we will never make an NFT. But here's the thing. Yeah. Uh, we could as a Patreon reward if, if anyone wanted to take this file mm -hmm. of a banner that is easily two feet by ten feet or yeah. eight feet. Uh, I'll, I'll give that file away if they if someone <laughs> wants to print their own old old only podcast about movie banner. Also, uh, Samurai Cop, we got a hold of for at five hundred. Yeah, Samurai Cop, I think is has been requested a couple times, probably by Hassan. Um, so I'm really happy about that. I'm glad that you got to watch the Grand Budapest Hotel yeah. and, and the and and this was the first entry into the Wes Anderson oeuvre. It's very fascinating. I think we we talked about Wes Anderson a lot on this episode yep. uh, and his relation to Michael Mann, but also several episodes about uh, Wes Anderson, uh, my particular uh, love for his movies and also the different stages. Cause it feels like to me, you've caught if, if grand Budapest is your first entry into Wes Anderson, you've caught him in his third wave. Yeah. I'd be curious what you thought of both asteroid city and, um, French uh, Dispatch, Rushmore, Bottle Rocket. Nope, no, it wasn't my thing. Why am I blank? Royal Tannenbaum. Oh, yes, thank you. Yeah. Wow, my brain shut off. Royal yeah. Tannenbaums. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because I don't know. Though I feel like you're in the you're in the middle. Yeah, yeah. You're you're right there. So I'm I'm very curious. I'm glad that um I'm glad that this prompt 
got you to watch that movie, uh, which you probably were going to do anyway. Well, this prompt got me to watch your your blind spot movie, mm-hmm. which I still can't pronounce. Beau travail. Beau travail. Yeah, which me, which translates to good work. Okay, I was uh, beau. I was like beau travail. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> travail. <laughs> which for those, uh, do you want me to read the IMDb yeah, uh, synopsis? So IMDb says beau travail. Beau travail. Beau travail. You got to get the. I can't do it. I'm so sorry. An ex-Foreign Legion officer recalls his once glorious life leading troops in the Digibooty, which is Madagascar. Oh, man. So many jokes I could make about what's in the booty. Uh, Uh, This this movie was different from those other movies that take place in Madagascar that I had seen. Although this similar genre of soundtrack towards the end. I like to move it, move it. Yeah. This is the yeah. rhythm of the night. Yeah. Oh, Fair. Yeah. The last, in in the credits, <laughs> uh, they are one and the same. Right. Uh, Shahir, how did, so you, you told the story like the onus of how you came to this film. Well, I, I hadn't picked my movie until you picked yours. And, um, you know, when you said Heat, I was like, great, I'm... I, I don't need an excuse to watch Heat, you know, like, I, but, but like you picked Heat and I was like, great, I, wa- I want to do that. Um, Botovai, I recall uh, when I was shooting a film in New Zealand, not not the one I was talking about earlier, but one many, many years ago. My cinematographer at the time, a guy by the name of Andrew Stroud, who's a terrific cinematographer, um, he just did uh, the film uh, Millie Lies Low, uh, which we oh. uh, have discussed on this podcast. Um, he w- When we were talking about how to film the film, he was like, I want to film it like Botovai. And I did what you did when it comes to the heat conversation. I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh, sure, sure, sure. Oh, yes, I, I understood that. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, I know yeah, yeah. exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He got a and great he, ass. He's got a great <laughs> ass. And we're all the way. And anyway, um, it's only now, what, uh, 15 years later that I have actually taken the time to watch this movie. And it was, I, when, I, I understand the reference now. Like, I understand what he meant by way, the way he wanted to shoot this film. Um, Claire Denis, again, is a notable filmmaker, um, one of the, the great French auteurs, um, that, uh, you know, like if you love film, you know who she is and you know her work. Uh, I am one of these people that haven't seen a lot of her work and I I have always felt that her work was a blind spot to me. Um, I wanted to see this because also the great, uh, sight and sound greatest films of all time list, which is the, the, you know, uh, Decentennial. I think every decade they do this list. Yes. Um, uh, recently came out in 2022, and Beau was number seven on that list. Uh, Heat was number 69, by the way. Um, nice. Nice. Oh, no, actually, it might have been even further down than that. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I can tell for a fact, and as I mentioned, I spent uh, years, there's a one video store in New Zealand called the Arrow Street Video Store, and, I, and it has this, like, enormous, it's a tiny video store, but it has this enormous catalog of foreign, difficult to, to reach films that they import in specifically. Yeah. Um, and I spent many, many years, I would go through directors' filmographies in there. And I would, you know, like rent out three of their films every week, watch all three, return, come back for the next three, that kind of thing. So Wong Kar Wai, Woody Allen, Roman Polanski were the three ones that I recall during that time, but also, you know, Theo Angelopoulos, um, Ang Lee, and um, also John Woo at the time as well. Um, several filmmakers uh, that I would just, you know, work I would go through. Yeah. But all men, all men, and arguably all terrible men uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in some way. Uh, and I I can see that if I caught this film at the right time in my life, um, particularly around the time I was like very invested in Wong Kar Wai, 
I would have absolutely adored this film. But then I did two, I did something with this, which is that I watched this film twice, um, back to back. Uh, you know, over it's two. a breezy hour and a half. It's an hour and a half, and I watched it the first night, in which in the first viewing, like I, I, I like I mentioned, I'd seen White Materials before, which also features uh, Christopher Lambert mm -hmm. in a non-Highlander based role, in a non-Raiden based role. <laughs> yeah, oh, Highlander and Raiden, <laughs> and um, uh, and Isabella Huppert, who's always who's always fun to watch. Um, I, I really responded well to, to white materials where I was like, oh, I really like this filmmaker. And then Botovai, the first watch of it was perplexing to me. I found it um, kind of languid and poetic in kind of the wrong way, um, which is that I'd read uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, Denise's biography before watching it. And I, and this film is kind of heralded as her masterpiece. And it's the highest rated uh, film, at least from the IMDb perspective. That yeah, uh, that she has done. And, um, you know, like uh, the the thing about Denise is that she talks about she doesn't shoot a lot on set. She kind of shoots what she needs and then walks away and then she constructs the film and editing. And this is a film to me as I watched it, I was going the actual on screen action is not quite as related to the narration as I kind of felt it warranted you know like basically the story was being told through the narration the images were absolutely breathtakingly gorgeous it was beautiful confusion for me yeah there was a lot of like an you know like an absence of sort of propulsion and it's interesting though that if we think about this in relation to heat um because heat is a film that is absolutely about the precision of construction both in in the characters and in man's actual filmmaking and in terms of like a classical narrative structure where we explain everything out we you know we mentioned the natalie portman character is set up in a classic um set up um explanation payoff you yep. know like it's three three beats whereas this film is is more in the mold of something poetic and in terms of we see moments as they happen and they are beautiful and they imprint themselves in our brain but we're not exactly sure why or how and 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 in, in first viewing i was kind of like left perplexed by it but there's an interesting thing that happens, which I think is part of, you know, the conversation around rewatchability of Heat, for example, which is that layers of the film reveal themselves the more you watch a film. And on watching the film the second time and kind of knowing where it was going to go, the actual depth of it became a little bit more prevalent. And it's interesting because... Um, uh, you know, the way this film is talked about, again, it's the number seven film on the greatest films of all time yeah. kind of thing. It's regarded as one of the greatest films that came out in 1999. Um, the, I posted on Twitter this week a conversation that Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight, has with Claire Denis and the way he talks about this film as being this profoundly beautiful impact on his life. And he, he it's interesting because he was actually talking about it. Uh, they were in lockdown during the George Floyd protests. And he talked about Botovay as a sort of important reference point for him to sort of think about uh, the way in which power um, manifests itself in authority during the George Floyd protest. And it's like really interesting to think, you know, like it's interesting to think about this film in that respect, because in this film, the character played by Dennis, um, uh, Dennis, Lahe, uh, Dennis, sorry, Denis, um, Levant, Dennis Levant, who's a uh, great in Holy Motors, by the way, uh, that's the other film I've seen him in, uh, Gallop, you know, I kept saying Galoop. Um, Galoop uh, uses his power for sort of personal vendettas. And it's and at first I was like, why is he so um, angry at Santaine? I Yeah, I never got that. So if you could fill that in for me, 
Well, I, you know what they talk, they actually talked about it in that conversation with Barry Jenkins. And they talk about the beauty of that is that it is kind of akin to like Iago and Othello, which is that we don't know why Iago hates Othello so well, much. Well, racism. But but there's this inherent. But he also loves Othello. Like and and, uh. and 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 he talks about his deep love for Othello. And so why he wants to tear him down is kind of an interesting mystery to the film. And there's an you know I think watching Botovai with that frame of reference in my head was kind of like oh it's interesting to think about this film as this person that is just deeply deeply uh, envious of Santane and and wants to destroy him it, it's part of his dna at this point and it's like it's interesting to watch it from that point of view what, i will agree yeah. by the way that the first watch of this film for me particularly now after the hype and after like the blind spot and everything and after my cinematographer saying it's one of the most beautiful films he'd ever seen kind of feeling a little bit like perplexed by the film and i'm not sure you know i'm 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 not suggesting that that perplexion has gone away or or that i would think about it but but I liked the exercise of, of having to negotiate with the film and wrestle with it a little bit. I liked that exercise. And I felt that there was, you know, on second watch, there was a kind of beauty to it. And then on second watch, the mechanics of it became a little bit more apparent to me as well. Mm. The first time I watched it, the mechanics of what the movie was doing was very like, I'm just kind of drifting along with this film. Yeah, luckily, I, I think luckily the visuals of this movie support the want to do that because for me again the first time I, i've only watched it once and i feel like my my experience was very similar to your first experience yeah i think that there's something interesting to be said with a film that like you you either do not connect with immediately and i don't want to say uh or, or it's this is the wrong term but i don't know how else to put it like the flaws you perceive aren't making things connect to you but yeah. there are elements of the movie namely the visuals and i think the the way I actually for this movie specifically the visuals right um it would make me be like yeah I'd watch that again because I bet there is stuff to be gleaned here if so much care is taken in this element of the film I it, it deserves my time for another thing and it sounds like that mm -hmm. when you did that you you got it yeah the like again so the the sort of like I wasn't fully aware of the flashback nature of the film. Yeah, neither was I till the kind of the end. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't aware of that Galam was having this uh, Galoom. Galoom was having this life that of loss and sorrow where he had left Digibooty and that was being played throughout the film. And and I know that there are points in the film where they actually like explicitly state that in narration. But the movie has this kind of dreamlike quality where it almost becomes hallucinatory. Like I, Yeah, I, there's I, a lot of workout scenes. Beautiful workout scenes. Uh, and I or, think like, or training scenes. Yeah, but yeah. Stretching, but, yeah, and I and I think the again the relationship that this film has to heat um, is you know the commonality is toxic masculinity, um, you know in this in this film and in, and in Heat, um, and we talk about masculinity as um, you know in academic circles I think is as a uh, a barrier to understanding the humanity of a person. I so Heat I definitely see it. Yeah, here I don't know if the I mean the only thing that is. I, I I don't know the toxic masculinity in this in in your blind spot film doesn't fully connect with me. It's almost like a bootlicking problem, like mm -hmm. which again they are all men. This is a men's uh, legion, like mm -hmm. uh, so. Yes, it's just it nothing. 
I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out why that didn't ring exactly true for me. But but like his his actions to like his he before Santayan even appears, uh-huh. he is really and he writes in his diary, I will set my trap to destroy this human being. Right. And but I don't I was trying to think of the specific I guess because I guess men would probably do that more. I'm trying to think of the other than the setting. I see the I see the trappings of toxic masculinity all over fucking heat. Yeah. Like I see it everywhere. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I, I'm maybe by the time we're finished talking about it, I can get it, or maybe I'm I'll I'll come around. But for, but for Bo, I don't. I what I've read for it. This is, I get maybe I'll just start from there, yeah, and maybe yeah. I can work my way back. Is it was sort of the nature of the 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 ability of power to corrupt in interesting ways, and not only not only the the how but the why mm-hmm. so uh galoop is mm-hmm. basically like kind of a fanboy for what mm-hmm. commander uh bruno yeah, yeah. uh yeah, who his, he carries he carries like a little bracelet of um yeah and he's like and like i i love this man uh so mm-hmm. much and he doesn't care if i live i forget how he puts it but mm-hmm. like he's okay with the fact that this dude doesn't give a shit about him but yeah. all he wants to do is impress this dude mm-hmm. and i feel like in especially sort of like fascist or or structures sort of like this that's kind of how it goes it's a weird like um <laughs> fetish or kink yeah, yeah, in a yeah. way um the homoeroticism of this film cannot be understood sure sure yeah. sure but like the, the it's just interesting and so i think let me know if on the second viewing this is what you got from it because this is what i thought at the end of my first he um Satane, he wanted to get rid of satane because he even before satane even did anything heroic or or anything he saw him as oh that's the guy that's going to take any shine away from me yeah and he's beautiful He's um, he's young. He's, he's everyone's interested in him. Yeah, I see. I never got the interest. Like that's the other thing of the. I, I never. He, he mentions that. Oh, in, he mentions in, it, but we never really see the men treat him. At least I didn't notice any differently from any of the other men. So that was kind of the confusing part for me. Was like, I don't know why this particular one of all of them until the heroic moment. Like, yeah. but maybe that's a maybe that's a flashback timey wimey thing that yeah. like we know before we see the reason why. Yeah. Um. But the nature of sort of the abuse of power and the why we do it, like he wanted to get rid of this guy because for whatever reason, he thought that guy was taking the shine away from this dude who he admitted was not even remotely looking at him at yeah, all. Yeah. Um, but and- this was this was the greatest um, part of his life. For which, yeah. which is weird. It's interesting as well. And I think the casting here really helped yeah. in that, which is that. Uh, Gregor O'Collin, who plays Santane, is extraordinarily beautiful. Oh, sure. And, 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 and Dennis Levant, who is, is this amazing physical performer. Again, watch Holy Motors, Leo Carax's film. Uh, is incredible, incredible physical performer who can sort of, uh, you know, like twist and twine his body in sort of interesting ways. He's sort of got this sort of dancer's background. But his face is like, um, you know, yeah, tell me about his face. It, it's filled with pockmarks and kind of, you know, like it's, 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 he it's, is not model beautiful, but it's hollow and interesting. I, and I don't mean to besmirch, you know, no, uh, I the, think he uses, I mean, but the, I think the casting is yeah. really effective here in terms of, he's like, also older in, yeah. than, than, uh, and he's the leader the, of this troop. He's the and, leader. And it's, it's, you know, like, they're it, both it, like jacked and he tries to like be more jacked. I mean, which it, I guess there's a toxic masculinity aspect of but it. But also, it's like, I mean, this is the same narrative as The Office, you know, like this is the, this is, um, uh, uh, who's the character? Dwight? Yeah, Dwight and, and, Jim? and Dwight, Jim, and um, uh, Stephen Carell. Yeah, and Stephen Carell. It's, it's the same dynamic here as, uh, as Bo Tawai. 
and and you know like he's the assistant to the regional manager um and and he try he goes out of his he, you can see that insecurity come up um just in the way the film is cast I, the way it's shot i love you've tied this film to the fucking office well, but it makes sense you're not wrong because i think the office is, is dealing you know like like the predator and prey of heat <laughs> the office is dealing in a stereotype which is that power corrupts and and those wishing to be in power are oh. often the most submissive to power itself. What a great fucking take. <laughs> I, 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 we, listen, listen. The office. We, we say a lot of stuff on the show, <laughs> including our name, which has an asterisk in it. Yeah. I don't know if anyone has made that particular connection about this film, but it feels so true. Uh, put that on the box. This is like assistant to the region. Yeah, man. yeah. And but but, <laughs> and I think it, it, it's like again, it, it really was the second viewing that did okay. this for me. Not I, I, like the first viewing. I think was probably like it was. And you know how last week you saw me on the street with the creator. Um, and you're like, Shahir's going to hate this movie. Yeah. I was like, I was watching Boat Survive with that frame of mind in my mind going, Matt's going to hate this movie. I didn't hate the movie. <laughs> I think, you know, what's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I was talking, oh, I was talking to Nick Parker and, uh, and, uh, Will Tempfer, yeah. uh, cause we were trying to. Again, going back to GTA, there's a Halloween event and you yeah. can go hunt ghosts. Right. And so we were trying to figure out when we could do that. Yeah. And I was like, I have to watch this movie first. Yeah. And I explained the exercise. Yeah. And I was like, oh, blind spots. And yeah. like, mine's heat. Yeah. And 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 she hears his boat. And I didn't know how to say it. And and they're like, wait, what? And he's like, and we were going through the ideas of like, why this was yours before I knew the story sort of behind it. Yeah. And And what we came up with was... <laughs> Basically, it's because you've seen so many movies <laughs> yeah. that like we were like, oh, this must be it. And then after I watched it, I was like, that's exactly what I expected it to be <laughs> from from Shahir's blind spot movie. Again, it's not it wasn't bad, but it was like one element of it kept me really engaged. And then like it has a promise of like, well, if you watch this like three or four times, it's fucking great. <laughs> but also, you know, like so they're just just circling into that conversation for one. Uh, Nick Parker and I watched There Will Be Blood uh, way too often. Have, have you seen There Will Be Blood? I've seen pieces of There Will Be Blood. I, I feel like that would be a blind spot movie. And it's like, and and Nick Parker and I are the toxic men who like talk about There Will Be Blood way too much. Um, but but um, I watched Heat now with the frame of references like, what would Matt think of this movie? And my <laughs> and and my my takeaway was uh, I, I actually didn't think you would like it. Not because you wouldn't like the movie, but because it's it's long and ponderous. And I like long and ponderous. I'm not saying that you wouldn't, but because it's long and ponderous, and um, everything that is great about it has been replicated somewhere else. And I felt like you, you know, like the Citizen Kane thing, you'd be like, I'm, I don't need to see the this second movie. part is true. I yeah. mean, I liked Bo is Afraid. Yeah, and that movie is long and ponderous. But you didn't like Bo Travail. <laughs> no, I, I liked it fine. I, I just. I, I don't mind that I, I understood that I, I felt that that was going to be your response to it. And it was also my response to it as well. Yeah, so I which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also felt that if I had watched it in kind of the right state, I, I think what's happened now as well is that this is a movie that demands in a way hypnosis. Like, yeah, you need to be hypnotized by the movie in order to fall under its spell. And it's much harder for a movie to do that. And like when I was in college, I, you know, we didn't, I didn't have a cell phone, didn't have much of the internet, you know, basically the internet, it was dial up thing. So I would have DVDs or VHS tapes even 
of movies and I would sit in a darkened basement by myself and watch these movies. And that allowed me to be hypnotized by the movies. Wong, seeing Wong Kar Wai at that particular time of your life yeah. was hypnotic. You know, like it was just, and you walked out of that darkened basement hypnotized by the movie. And I think it is harder to be hypnotized by a movie now. I, and, and in order to compensate for that, I felt, I felt it was appropriate to watch the movie a couple yeah. of times. And the second time, you know, the beauty of the film, you know, kind of became, gave way. So the first time was just about the, the beauty of it. And it was hard to kind of figure out how the mechanics of the movie were working. The second time, the mechanics started to fall into place for me, which was, you know, these, these little details like the compass, like the, the, the other soldier, the other legionnaire who is Muslim and, and um, who is um, uh, observing Ramadan. Now, I grew up in a Muslim family, mm -hmm. so this is all familiar. You know, like hearing the actual, uh, the prayers, like, oh, I, I know those prayers. And, and then like knowing that it's Ramadan as well in an African, in a sub you know, Saharan African country, you know, like one of my favorite stories about Hakeem Olajuwon, the basketball player, was that he played, I think it was for, he played for the uh, Houston Rockets. Mm -hmm. Someone's going to correct me on that. But he <laughs> played like, I, I think, a, a, a season while in Ramadan. Which is you fast? Yeah, that's, you know, that's you know, a wow. You know, like and so and so seeing these soldiers who are out there doing what is a menial task and what is and a task that is has no purpose. Like Galop, you know, says Galop also says we we decided to take them out just because we felt we needed something to do. So we said we're going to repair this road, and it's like clear that they don't need to do this. Yeah, but it, it, people are using it and looking at them, being like, "Why are you here?" Yeah, exactly. And it's like this. You know, there's exercise and futility, but then it kind of gave way to the beauty of it as well. And like the exercise that these men do are beautiful and not the kind of thing that you would associate with the rhythm of the night with, with, with the military <laughs> men. But in, except in that homoerotic way, which is that, you know, like the way the film has also been described as a dance movie. Um, and, and, you know, like the actual sequences of their fitness was choreographed by dancers. Mm -hmm. uh, and Denise Levant, I, th I believe, has a, a dance background as well. And, you know, in that way, there was this thing about exposing ourselves to films that don't work in the rhythm of the way that we operate. Now, Heat is a film I deeply adore. I've watched it so many times. And it operates in the Hollywood model. It operates in the Hollywood three-act structure. Yeah. It, is, it is set up in that model. And Botrovai is 100% not that. But and, you could watch Botrovai twice in the length that it takes to watch Heat. Yeah, you could. You could absolutely <laughs> do that. And then, and then, But then allowing ourselves to be open to the rhythm of films that don't work in the way that we, that we work. And like, you know, again, as a young man watching Terrence Malick films for the first time, you know, kind of does that. And, and, and what I'm trying to get at with this exercise is that um, it, it's part of the kind of the big thing that I always talk about, which is that go seek out movies that you don't think you will, you know, th that you haven't thought about or that you, you know, are out of your wheelhouse yeah. and try them and, and experience it and soak in them. Don't just reject them because they're, they're different to what you expect, but try to meet them on their own terms. Is there's something so fun. This is, I hope this isn't too much of a tangent, but when we were looking up 1995 yeah. films, I was going through mm -hmm. and one film that came up that I never watched, but I saw on the beginning trailers on VHS tapes for every other film from 1995 mm -hmm. was Rob Roy. Oh yeah. Yeah. The okay. Liam Neeson film. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, I remember, I, see yeah. I remember seeing that trailer a thousand times <laughs> and every time thinking just based off what I just looked at in the computer and what you just said, 
fuck, I think I, I'm so, this movie looks so fucking bad. I hate this. There's the way the trailer was mm. sort of, it was like lilting and like, it was almost like a, a sensual, tried- uh, oh, right. uh, I don't even know what the movie itself was, like one way or I the think, other. To me, they tried to sell it as bra- as Irish Braveheart. But like the, <laughs> the trailer I saw, I remember back in the day was more of a like, uh, I, I keep thinking of the word sultry. Anyway, yeah. I, I Scottish, remember- Scottish Braveheart, yeah. sorry. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> whoa. Um, but like now it's funny. I'm like, should I go back and watch Rob Roy? And again, not that that's going to be the pinnacle of cinema or anywhere close to either of these films, but there is a there is a really- interesting thing to going and trying to watch something that either in the past you thought you'd never like yeah. or now you see a trailer for something you're like oh no i wouldn't like you more often than not i surprise myself with what i enjoy yeah yeah i i think there you know like um there i think what we're getting at as well and this is not a grand thesis that we've been sort of percolating or anything but like there is this enormous archive of movies and they are as varied as great literature is. And I think one of the other reason I picked Claire Denis that I was thinking about was that the uh, I saw in the last few weeks a list of um, the highest grossing box office directors of all time. And I looked at that list and I and the the comment that that actress made to me about the fact that I hadn't watched many film, female filmmakers just dinged like a bell when I when I looked at that list. And I was like, it is all white men. Yeah. It is all white men that are, that are the highest grossing box office. And I'm not saying that in a pejorative way. I love a lot of their films. Steven Spielberg is number one. And I was like, and I love Steven Spielberg films. I'm not suggesting in any way that that, that, that should be derided. What I'm suggesting is, is that uh, for one, I am a brown man. And two, uh, there are there is a wealth of opportunity to watch things that yes. don't come from that sort of hegemony of power. I think I'm using that word correctly. There. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Like, no, it's true. And, and, and. I think we can say without taking anything away from the the famous white men directors. Yeah. Uh they're excellent. But they had far more opportunity than people of color, women, etc to get to get to show off that level of craft and skill. And that's why they're all known is because that the, the system was put into place where their talents were more easily lift upable in the public culture and zeitgeist. Capitalism, baby. Yeah. Um so I'm I'm always very excited to sort of be able to open like open a door that I'm like before I was like, oh, well, this doesn't feel like I'd enjoy it. But like because nine times out of ten, I do. Yeah, I don't know. It's just real fucking cool. Um, I. Especially after talking to you about it, I am looking forward to watching this film again. Mm-hmm. It did feel like the kind of film that that you would and the hypnosis line that you said actually is a really really apt one too because i feel like again just to put them back and forth heat is not a film i get hypnotized by it's not a film that i am lulled into a sense of 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 uh calm and sort of like the world i am ratcheted into a chair and i'm like oh god oh god it's not like a it's not a flow state movie yeah Yeah. um where this i feel like would a thousand percent be like a now that I am not worried about, well, how is this structurally connecting? And I know the basic pieces. I could let it sort of do the hypnosis, the washover. Yeah. And that's interesting. That's 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 something cool that is outside of the the standardized Hollywood structure. And um, I don't know, could do more, more of it. Um, should we listen to a couple more? Yeah. Uh, a couple more uh, emails. We're going to we're going to kind of go through these here again. Thank you, everyone that emailed us in at only movie podcast at gmail dot com. And we love all these. We hope these movies 
Uh, we hope some of you watch Botovai. We hope some of you watch Heat for the first time. And we hope and some of you watch Rob Roy. Rob Roy and Princess Bride. Uh, Princess Bride and the Grand Budapest Hotel. And all of these. And all of these. Again, the sight and sound list, I think, is a great thing. Not that the sight and sound list is a monolith, but it's really fascinating because it comes from filmmakers. Um, directors and critics around the world as to what they yeah. think the greatest movies are. And it's worth checking out um, what they think. So let's uh, let's hear from some other people in terms of what their blind spots are. Okay, so I didn't have time to watch the movies, but I still wanted to let you know what were some movie blind spots on my mind. Number one, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Steven Spielberg, John Williams. Not to be too spoilery, but I hear there's some cool musical maybe communication sounds neat uh another one is taxi driver uh, i just heard there's some really cool shots in it uh, also written by paul schrader who i've started to see the films he's directed lately and i really like them so it'll be interesting to see i think um, where the hubbub all started so yeah that's um some movie blind spots that when i have time i will um try to watch and un unblind i think is how we put it goodbye Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, Jacob. I uh, thought you were going to go with the no spoilers thing. I thought you were going to go and say. Uh, Are you about to give a spoiler? A very minor one. Uh, I hear there's some stuff with mashed potatoes. Yes, there is. Uh, and that's what I thought was it was going to come with. But you did the musical. Yeah, okay, right. here's a here's a here's a trivia question. Follow up for you, Jacob. This is only for Jacob and any, maybe anyone else who wants to write us a only movie podcast. The mashed potato scene is directly referencing another famous French filmmaker. What filmmaker and what film is that film referencing? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, it's a, it's a, it's you can Google the mashed potato scene and find out. It's a, it's a really great one. Close Encounters is a wonderful film. Taxi Driver. I actually just watched um, Paul Schrader's film, The Card Counter, a few weeks ago with okay. Oscar Isaac. Because um, there's kind of been a trilogy. Of, oh yeah, I've uh, watched that. Yeah, yeah. Oscar Isaac is a is a, a former military yeah. vet from Abu Ghraib. Uh, or Abu Ghraib, uh, and uh, is counting cards now. There's been a trilogy of Paul Schrader films. I think First Reformed, uh, The Card Counter, and The Gardener, I think is the last one, the Joel Edgerton, which mm. I haven't seen yet. Um, so yeah, great, great to jump into Paul Schrader. And again, big back catalog with Paul Schrader as well. The film, Jacob, that is a huge blind spot for me, and it's a blind spot for me because I've listened to the soundtrack on repeat for many years, is Mishima. Uh, a story told in four chapters, mm. uh, which is available on the Criterion Collection, another Paul Schrader film, uh, which I've always been meaning to watch but haven't yet. Get it on physical, on you know, Criterion Collection physical. <laughs> but but Jacob, email us in. See if you watch Close Encounters and see if you can figure out what the reference to that Spielberg is making in that mashed potato scene. Spoiler alert, it, it is not UHF. <laughs> it isn't. UHF does this. UHF does a reference to Close Encounters. Oh, yeah. that's three times in for that particular filmmaker. <laughs> Kellen writes us in with his blind spot. Hey, Topam fam. Hope you're all doing well. I have far too many blind spot movies to mention. Every Ari Aster movie, Requiem for a Dream, The Before Trilogy, Scott Pilgrim, the list goes on and on. But to better fit the spooky season, I'm going to talk about Scream. The big reason I'd never seen it before was I'm generally not a horror movie guy or a fan of high school teen movies. I also learned what the big twist was years ago and wasn't sure what else it could offer me. So, I have to say, after watching it, I enjoyed Scream more than I expected, just not by much. Knowing the twist ending did make the first two acts a lot of fun, but otherwise it was pretty average. I know the meta-commentary of it all was super cool and fresh in the 90s, but today it's old hat. 
As I suspected, nearly all of the teens are the most annoying people on the planet. When the principal, played by Henry Winkler, threatened the two punks who pulled the ghost face prank in the school, I stood up and cheered. Seriously, every teen, except for Sydney, was awful and deserved to die. Well, I think that's the setup. Uh, Henry I'm, Winkler, the true hero of Scream. I'm feeling a little woozy, Kellen, from, from, from your commentary. No, that look, I th- this is the other thing about blind spots. We are watching these generally are movies that we are watching out of the time and context with which they came in, right? Sure. So we, you and I, when did Scream come out? 97? I'll look it up. Either way, Kellen, we're old. We were in the theater when Scream came out, and it was- 96. 96. It was right after Heat. Yeah. Uh, uh, the direct uh, sequel to Heat. Yeah, direct sequel to Heat, Scream. Um, a sugar rush of a movie in terms of like the way it employed commentary. And then the sequel, which then you know discusses sequels, is great. Um, I'm so glad that you watched it and that you had your take on it. You know, like I- I, I'm very curious how that film plays now. Now and now that we've got six sequels to it, Kellen, do us a favor: watch every single screen. You film. don't have to. <laughs> uh, if you have the time, yeah. cool. <laughs> uh, next blind spot comes in from Die Hard on a Blank uh, host uh, Liam. I'm so glad to hear from Liam, and uh, hopefully, we'll be doing some crossover with that podcast at some point. Hello to the gentlemen of Only Movie Podcast. Long time no talk. It's Liam. Uh, I saw your prompt about blind spots in your film history, and I thought I'd send you a voicemail because today I saw the film Stop Making Sense, the concert film by Jonathan Demme and the Talking Heads, a band I loved in college and have spent considerably less time with later on in life, but have always enjoyed. Um, I wanted to see this on the big screen screen. I wanted to see this on the big screen. I'd been waiting for years to do it properly, and it, it delivered. It is a really incredible experience to see something as cinematic as a meticulously crafted, rehearsed, and created stage show. It really is a movie uh, as much as it is a concert. It is not just capturing a concert, but it's, a, it's really making a piece of cinematic art, and I loved it, and I hope you guys are good. Bye-bye. Thank you, Liam. Actually, this is funny. This ties into a conversation that we were having right before the podcast. It's us. Hi. We're the problem. It's us. uh, I'm going to see the Taylor Swift movie this weekend with my son uh, and my wife, and I think that's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. I saw it on Saturday. How was it? It was great. Yeah? Uh, Eris tour all the way. She's coming for everything this year, and I'm not not against it. (laughs) Taylor Swift. Twee Swizzle Uh, for president. Tay-Tay cannot be stopped. But but I have not seen Stop Making Sense either. Same. And and my Barrett, I love Jonathan and Demi, uh, you know, like big Sons the Lambs fan, big Rachel getting married fan. Um, I haven't seen Married to the Mob, and there's prop. Oh, uh, he did the Manchurian Candidate remake as well, right? Yeah, yeah. At, at, at any rate, um, uh, oh, and Philadelphia. Uh, my barrier to entry is that I haven't heard a lot of talking heads. I know this must be the place is like is one of my favorite New York anthems. Um, but I haven't heard a lot of talking heads and I'm always worried that if I'm going to walk into a, con- a concert movie, I'm kind of stuck in the concert. Yeah. And if I don't know a lot of the songs, that that's my big barrier to entry. But I know that everyone raves about Stop Making Sense as as one of the great concert movies. I will say, having just gone to a concert movie and not going to a lot of concert movies, it was very, very fun. Yeah. Uh, the only problem, mm-hmm. and it was not the film's problem, I really liked that everyone got rowdy and sung and ran around and stuff. Um there was a, a couple next to me that had um, light sticks mm-hmm. like you'd have at a concert mm-hmm. and it said Alamo's version. 
like Taylor's version, like okay. on them. So it must have been merch that they yeah. were selling somewhere, but no one else in the theater had them. Yeah. And it was incredibly distracting in a dark theater where you're watching a screen yeah. to have a light just shining in front of the right <laughs> of your face. Uh, other than that, it was a great experience. And, and that's a hard conversation to have. I didn't, like, I, I'm not going to stop them. Because you know, it's like, could you stop having fun, please? Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm here to watch the movie. Please clap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no. So, uh, yeah. Thank you, Liam. Who else we got? Paul writes us in. Thank you, Paul. What is up, Matt Jahir? This is Paul writing in with more cinematic blind spots than I can count. But considering that it's spooky season and the last episode I listened to from you guys was your coverage of Evil Dead Rise. I thought now would be a perfect opportunity to close up my blind spot of the original 1981 Evil Dead. So with the sound effect whoosh, I'll be right back and tell you what I thought. <laughs> Gotta say, after 40 plus years, the Evil Dead remains pretty provocative and pretty scary. Looking forward to Matt watching Heat. See you guys. Production value from Look at Liam. that. I, I don't I, even have to do it. I don't is, even have to add the whoosh. It's there already. That is amazing. Uh, Paul, uh, again, thank you for, for seeing uh, Evil Dead and taking the time. Um, this is actually a great uh, uh, um, reference point for Heat uh, because we talked about the fact that uh, L.A. Takedown was made prior to Heat. And Evil Dead and Evil uh, Evil Dead Two is kind of a direct sequel, uh, is a direct remake of Evil Dead, but with more of the lessons that Sam um, uh, Sam Raimi had learned over time and a little bit more time spent on it. So, it'd be, Paul, I'm really fascinated if you get the time to watch Evil Dead Two, which is a direct remake of Evil Dead, um, and then you know, I, thinking about it because we did uh, Evil Dead Rise recently, Evil Dead Rise, which just did not land for me as a I film liked it. um there was a film we did a few weeks after evil did rise that really did work for me i can't recall what it was right now but i was like oh that's what i wanted from evil did rise uh, oh uh, uh talk to me yeah that's right yeah talk to me so uh uh glad that you closed up that loop and uh, yeah i mean matt have you watched evil did recently or i mean i've watched that's a movie that i've watched a thousand times and go. i love yeah. i love the original i love too army of darkness i love as well i, I love army of darkness. you know what's funny though i i have fallen off of the ash cinematic universe so i never shown yeah there yeah. was a tv show there's been games there's yeah. been like i don't i don't care and a, and a terrible I, cameo at the end of evil did uh, the the I, and I the hadn't one. seen the one before yeah the 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 previous remake or yeah. whatever yeah um no I I I like Evil Dead as a comedy yeah more than I do and I think Evil Dead one in particular that line gets a little bit crossed with the tree sequence like yeah you know, it's yeah. like it's like you stop laughing at that moment and it sort of gets a little bit you you sure unsure what to laugh. Again, curious to see, uh, you know, like uh, out of time, what that film plays like. Last, uh, last one in from Tandy. Uh, I love this person's voice. You're going to hear it right now. Yeah, nice. Hey, it's Tandy, a.k.a. Jonathan Blade. So I've seen a lot of Stanley Kubrick's movies, but I've never seen one that I think will directly appeal to my sensibilities, which is Dr. Strangelove. So tonight we're taking in Dr. Strangelove. That was something. Dr. Strangelove is supposed to be one of the greatest comedies of all time, and I don't know about that. It's less hilarious. It's amusing, but it's less hilarious than it is uh, depressingly inevitable. And it does that very well. So hats off to Stanley Kubrick. 
<laughs> what a what a twist. I know the blade. I got to say uh for years me and a couple of friends of mine we were quoting Doctor Strange Love just obnoxiously. <laughs> like we were like you can't fight in here. It's the war room. Yeah, what about the big board? The big board. Um I you know uh that's also a film that I you know kind of like you with Heat. Yeah. I knew about before I'd seen it. I went. I remember I uh, with my high school. We traveled to the United States um, as a school trip, uh-huh. and we were here for like three weeks. And we traveled from L.A. to Washington and back again on the Amtrak trains. And we stopped in all places at Alam in um, in uh, Albuquerque, where there is the Los Alamos Museum uh, of Nuclear Warfare or of Nuclear Bombs. And I I hadn't seen Doctor Strangelove at this point but I knew the reference and rode every bomb and took a photo of it because of, and it was only years later that I had, when I watched Dr. Strangelove and I was like, oh, that's what I was doing. And I didn't realize, I think there was a Simpsons reference to it as well. Um, have you seen Dr. Strangelove? Yeah, it's been a minute. Yeah. Uh, I remember liking it. It is my favorite Kubrick film uh, of all time. I think it is the most human of Kubrick's films. Yeah, um, that's definitely it. Um, was it I, Buck Turgeston and uh, Jack D. Ripper, whose uh, precious bodily fluids are being <laughs> evaporated away? Right, right. I, I, look, I love, I love the the blade. Didn't like it though. There's something. I, I don't know if he didn't like it. I thought he found it depressing. I, or, or, or listen, I was reading into emotional inflection. Yeah. It yeah. didn't. Uh, the he blade didn't, come didn't off, seem like you liked it. He didn't come off like laughing his ass off. No, which is what my reaction. To that was more of the, my reactions when I'm like that was a movie yeah uh, <laughs> the blade again I, I i'm not these aren't assignments or anything like that but i'm really curious again the blade watch sydney lumet's film failsafe which came out i think a few years before dr strangelove and it is a, built on a similar premise to dr strangelove which is about nuclear uh nuclear arm again again this is all ties to oppenheimer as well but told with a much more somber tone uh george clooney did a uh a live tv um rendition of failsafe uh maybe about 10 years ago um which is also really fascinating um failsafe is a is an interesting film because it is um it comes in the wake uh, you know sure. like it came earlier but i think it's completely overshadowed by dr strangelove um and and i think dr strangelove sort of irreverence and satire kind of takes 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 hold yeah I'm so glad everyone did this. Yeah, it was I, very fun. Thank you all for writing us in only movie, only movie podcast at gmail.com and taking the time to record uh, uh, your 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 blind spot films at such short notice. We really do appreciate it. This was a fun exercise for 450. Yeah. 450. 450. 450. This has been the only podcast that has gotten to 450. Mm, I, I don't think that's the case. But. This is the only podcast. <laughs> Uh, thank you, everyone. Again, beautiful voices as well. Like the the, the recording quality on some of these. The recording quality well, has gone up, y'all. And it's, it's, it's appreciated. Me, it's making me worried that like when we send our podcast out, we sound like a bunch of schmucks. Of course we people. do. Of course um, we do. That's the whole thing. Um, but thank you again. Thanks to everyone who listens in. Thanks to everyone who like chimes in with um, with thoughts, comments. Who who sends us the Dune memes? I'm looking at you, Paul. Uh, who tells us about every episode? Uh, we're thinking about you, Zach. Uh, who, um, you know, everyone who chimes in, uh, again, we, this is the reason we, we're continuing to yeah. do the podcast. Uh, next week, uh, oh, so we got two we, options. We got two options. We got Killers of the Flower Moon. I know, Killers of the Flower Moon is yep. number one. Yep. Or the Eras Tour, because apparently we're both seeing it. I, my only thing with the Eras Tour. I don't Tour, think we should do the Eras Tour. That was yeah, a joke. I, yeah. I, I, there is There is something to be said and a conversation to be had about 
concert movies mm-hmm. and and something I find more interesting, cultural touch points. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I'm deep enough, nor will I have the time to do the research to like have enough to say about the filmed version of the Eris tour. Right. Um, there's there's an interesting conversation to be had around it. Yeah. And 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 the 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 of it all. Mm. I don't think w- I'm not equipped to do it, though. I find it interesting. Uh, I'm Kill- sure we could. I'm sure we could find some T Swizzle fans. Oh yeah, I'm not even worried us. about fans. Yeah. I, I, I'm, and I'm tell a us fan. the whole history. I'm a fan, yeah. but I um, I don't know. There, there's when a Scorsese movie drops, it feels it feels apt. Yeah, I, I I read the book. There was actually a really fascinating um, um, red carpet yesterday where I think the language translator for the film uh, was asked a question about what he thought about the movie. And it was a red carpet scenario where everyone's kind of there mm-hmm. to sell the movie. And he basically was like, well, it's a, you know, it's an interesting movie. And, um, you know, like for the, but he said, but I think it would be more interesting if an Osage filmmaker made this movie because there's something about this movie that essentially gives some sympathy to someone who is who is the villain of the film, mm. and and he be, you know like that's a really unusual response to have on a red carpet, and, yeah. I'm, and I'm here for it. Sure, um, I'm very curious about it. The movie's gotten such great reviews thus far. Um, you know, Scorsese's 80 years old and still cranking out these you know these pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm fascinated to to hear that, and you know, uh, I think that'll be an important film for us to discuss. That's probably uh, what we're doing. If we can get to it in time, it, like it opens, yeah, it's it's going to be a tricky one to get to, but I'm excited to see it. Um, yeah, I think I yeah, we'll we'll talk about scheduling and things like that. Hey, Matt, happy four fifty. Hey, happy four fifty. We did it. You don't look a day over three hundred. We don't look a day. <laughs> yeah, it's because our our blood is sand at this yeah. point. Um. All right. Well, until we speak at you next time, please keep watching movies you didn't expect to watch and <laughs> and loving them, and then telling us about them, and so we can make content off them. For you to listen to. Which we're making so much money off of. I didn't say money. I said content. <laughs> yeah. Listen, uh, there are ads now. Okay. To take us out, um, pronounce Botrevay. Botrevay? It's Botrevay. 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 And it's like some people actually say Travay. Botrevay. And I, I'm my my Mrs. O'Brien, my old high school French teacher, will probably have a better pronunciation. Now pronounce heat. Butrevail. <laughs> Butrevail. Hot. What? Hot. Assistant to the regional manager, Butrevail. <laughs> Assistant to the regional manager, Butrevail. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. All right. Bye. Bye.